1: Well, welcome, Professor Koppelman. Thank you for joining us on New Books in and Law. And, and you're here to talk about the tough luck Constitution and the assault on health care reform. There's so much to say and get into. I wonder if first you could tell us a little about what your background was leading up to your work and thinking on this topic.
0: So I'm a constitutional law professor at Northwestern Law School. I teach constitutional law year. Uh, My other scholarship actually hasn't been about health care law and policy. Uh, So I've just finished a book called Defending American Religious Neutrality that tries to make sense of the law law of clauses. The only reason why I got into this area was uh, I was invited to do a debate about uh, constitution and healthcare reform and so I thought there at that time there had only been a couple of district court cases that held that the law was unconstitutional and I hadn't paid a lot of attention to them but uh, since I was invited to do the debate I sat down and I read the decisions and I was just astonished the reasoning was so bad, it was worse than anything that I would have imagined I imagined that world just... Because the quality of the federal judiciary is generally fairly high, and uh, but here the reasoning was just awful. So I wrote uh, a couple of blog posts. I blog for a blog called Balkanization, B-A-L-K-I-N-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N, uh The Jack Balkan runs out of Yale Law School, uh, and uh, you know just uh, explaining what was wrong with the reasoning of these cases, and then I got interested uh, the I'm not a specialist in health law but I do teach issues of congressional power and I know something about congressional power and so uh, I was able to just in reading the cases see what was the matter with the reasoning about congressional power that was there in the cases and then more decisions came down and every time a decision came down I was interested enough to read about it and write about it and i ended up just right more in this area so uh i ended up rolling it all skeptical which uh you know to my great surprise i didn't know if anyone would have won it but it made it into the online brielle law journal and uh then it's just there are times when you're just in the right place at the right time this had become a hot issue and it had a huge readership on the uh, law journal it got hundred thousand hits a month so then Salon an uh, online magazine invited me to cover the Supreme Court oral argument and so I wrote about the, for them about the Supreme Court oral argument and it was during the oral argument that Oxford University Press contacted me and asked me if I'd like like to write a book about it so uh, so I got to work right away on writing the book. There are obviously parts of the book that you could write without knowing how the case is going to turn out. So basic questions that I want to know are, first of all, what is this mandate in the health care law? Why is it there in the first place? Why did Obama put it in there when it was so unpopular? And that's a story that you can tell and that the first chapter tries to tell without really knowing what the court's going to do. Whatever the court did, that chapter was going to have to look the way that it looked. And then a second question is constitutional limitations. Why are there limitations on congressional power? How should those limitations be thought of today? It's over 200 years after the Constitution was written. Do the constitutional limitations make any sense? And how do they apply to the health care mandate? Those are also questions that you can address without Knowing anything about how the court is going to come out. So uh, I was, and then the, there are questions of the, con- the history of the constitutional challenge. Where did it come from? Who came up with it in the first place? How did it take on the kind of momentum that it? Those were questions that I was able to get into again without knowing at all how the case was out. So, uh, by the time the decision came out, I really had the book almost half written, uh, and then I read the opinion and uh, was able to react fairly quickly to that. Uh, well, so that's thought, how the book happened.
1: Right. Well, I thought we might start, and I apologize for the noise in the background here, I thought we might start with the thing that tends to be an afterthought um, to a lot of discussions, and maybe we could talk first about the Medicaid part of the ruling and the... Uh, the nature of congressional power when it comes to Medicaid, and see if we can get through that to the the subsidiarity concept that you lay out in your discussion of the history.
0: All right. Well, there are really two different aspects of congressional power that are relevant here. Uh, The mandate, the provision that requires you to buy insurance, which is what um, the litigation was about and what everybody expected the court was going to hand down an important decision on uh, was uh, a matter of Congress's power to require people to do things. You had to have health insurance. If you don't, if you go without health insurance, you are going to have to pay uh, well, it's either a penalty or a tax. It matters a lot what you call it. Uh, there's another power that Congress has and that's the power to spend money. And it's got a general power to tax and spend for the general welfare. And Congress gets to decide what the general welfare is. So the taxing power is pretty Broad and uh, really uh, unlimited. Uh, Now, uh, the court has, uh, from time to time, put limits on the spending power. Since the 1930s, it didn't impose limitations on the spending power. Uh, In fact, until a case, it hadn't imposed any limitations since well, since the 1930s. There are limitations. uh, the court said uh, in the healthcare case that Congress can't use its spending power in a way that forces the states to do things. What's relevant here is there's uh, one of the provisions of the health care bill is that it massively expands Medicaid uh, which provides free health insurance to the lowest income Americans. Before the health care bill Medicaid was uh, well Medicaid was and is a cooperative program between the federal government and the states so both the federal government and the states uh, I contribute more money and Medicaid only exists in states that agree to have Medicaid uh, what the health care bill did was massively increase Medicaid before uh, the health care bill was passed some states were really pretty stingy in uh, the Medicaid funds that they provided so it was possible for a family with children who made a few thousand dollars a year to already be too rich for Medicaid in some states
1: so yeah, what it, hel- was, it would go to four-thirds right of the four-thirds of the poverty line was now the threshold below so which the, they uh, had to be covered
0: the affordable care act raises the standard for right. medicaid to 133 percent of the poverty line that's right and uh what it, it said uh, this is now the way that the medicaid program works so if a state wants to continue to receive medicaid funds from the federal government it has got to agree to this change in medicaid all previous changes in medicaid medicaid is provided to the states on a take it or leave it basis. have to accept this federal money but if you accept this federal money you don't get to revise and edit Federal got to take the federal program as it's provided. That was what the Affordable Care Act said, and that provision is what the uh, court said violated the Constitution. In fact, it's the only holding of the court in the Affordable has actually struck down a provision of the Affordable Care Act. The court said the Medicaid expand the states can if they like keep the old Medicaid funds and decline the new Medicaid funds now this doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the standpoint of the states since for the first few years the expansion of Medicaid is completely paid for by the federal government because it doesn't cost the states a penny. The federal government picks up 100% of the cost of Medicaid. And then after a few years, the federal contribution drops to 90% and it stays at 90% permanently after that. So it's a very good deal for the states. But the court said by saying to the states, you have to accept the whole new program or you'll lose all your Medicaid funds. The states are being coerced. They are being forced. And Congress can't use its spending power to force the states to do something that the states don't want to do. A uh, very strange holding because uh, it's just not clear how you get this constitutional distinction between the new program and the old program. Chief Justice Roberts said that uh, denial of the future funding is a gun to the head. It is uh, economic dragooning that leaves the states with no real option. But uh, it's it's an odd idea of coercion. Uh, Robert seems to think coercion any time an offer is very generous. Uh, So if I offer you a million dollars, you'll take off your left shoe and put it back on. I can be pretty sure that you're going to take my offer, but I don't think I've forced
1: you. Right. So this offer that can't be refused because it's so good, not because it's so threatening, um, was the the essence there I wonder if we can connect that up now nine months later what has the effect of that holding the striking down of the expansion been how is it how is it shaping up for for people in the well, states
0: uh a large number of Republican governors, when the st- decision first came down, said that they were going to accept the court's invitation to turn down the Medicaid money. Uh, now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, as I said, from the standpoint of their own populations, but, uh, it wasn't all Republican governors. There was, uh, you know, but, uh, almost all Republican governors, uh, are, that they were going to turn down the money uh, were almost all Republicans uh, and uh, the, uh, and then over time between then and now a number of them have changed their minds. I guess the most prominent of these is Rick Scott in Florida who uh, is very vocally opposed to any aspect of the Affordable Care Act eventually be pres- became persuaded that the deal was too good and that he couldn't turn it away Um, the big question mark that remains is Texas Uh, so there are more uninsured people in Texas than in any other state one in four Texans has no health insurance almost two million of them would get insurance via the Affordable Care Act uh, from 2014 to 2019 Texas would get an additional $52 billion. And that's more than half of the state's annual budget. So uh, this is a huge gift for Texas, but uh, Rick Perry has said that he's going to refuse the money and he's under increasing pressure from hospitals with him, but he says he's not going to budge. Uh, it doesn't really make sense. Right now in Medicaid, uh, in, in Texas, uh, you can get Medicaid uh, only if you're an adult with children, and even then, only if your income is 23% of the poverty level. So this is really hurting poor people in Texas. And it's also just very bad for the Texas economy to turn the money down. This is... Uh, this is a lot of money. It creates a lot of jobs, and these are good jobs in medicine. These uh, are uh, high-paying jobs. So, uh, so it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but then the Supreme Court's holding didn't make a lot of sense.
1: Well, I'd like to ask about two pieces of that. One is the two uh, surprising justices in that result, and then stepping ahead to Roberts himself, uh, justices Breyer and Kagan joined the result on Medicaid, and you have an interesting theory about that that's just in a couple of sentences. I wonder if you think that's worth touching on, because it's a, such a strange policy outcome for judge, justices that are you know generally thinking the spending power is pretty expansive.
0: Well, certainly in terms of uh, trying to figure out uh, why did those judges join this case? Uh, you know, their uh, their general views on federal power are completely inconsistent with their joining this holding. Uh, I've got a guess, but it is only a guess that uh, you know you've got a fairly new chief justice. That uh, chief justice is isolated from his colleagues uh, and uh, you know he's very much alone and sometimes a judge will join another judge's opinion really just out of courtesy and uh, in order to encourage good relations between the judges that's my best guess as to why they were part of that opinion but it's only a guess Right. You know, some some people have suggested, well, part of the court's reasoning must be pretty powerful, given how many people joined it. But uh, you, you read it, and it doesn't make any sense. Well, that
1: those two things we've laid out then suggest a story about people. We've talked about two million Texans. We've talked about the possibility of log rolling and personalities on the court. As we move toward the ideas that were involved, what is it in the Medicaid holding that Roberts cared about? I wonder if you could just touch on, it sounds like the big key is that the states now have the power, thanks to Justice Roberts, to cut off their noses to spite their face. Um, But that's the state power now that wasn't necessarily ever found even in Dole or the cases since Dole, right?
0: Well, I think... There is uh, There was an idea that really became big when Ronald Reagan became president. But uh, what's fundamentally wrong with uh, the United States since the New Deal is that power is too centralized and there's not enough power involved for the states. And Roberts's holding is broadly consistent with that. Um, there is a deeper thing going on. I... Uh, that's my best guess as to what that is. But, you know, it's very hard to tell because, you know, when you read a judicial opinion, all you've got in front of you is the arguments. And my general sense is that it's better to read arguments and see whether they make sense instead of trying to psychoanalyze the justices. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, my speculation is that this with a concern about states' rights. But it's just an educated guess.
1: One way of telling the story that you've just touched on goes back to the early 80s. It really does seem that this case might have been the culmination of the Federalist Society's project, and I, not to psychoanalyze anyone, but he, w- Justice Roberts was a, a Federalist Society person who said we should have clearer state powers, right? So this would have been... The highlight, uh, if it had brought down the entire Affordable Care Act, that would have been a pretty big result for that agenda. Um, Or maybe speaking out of turn.
0: Well, bringing down the Affordable Care Act, I mean, that's the really remarkable thing about the dissenters in the case is that they were prepared to do that. And the reasoning on the basis of which they're ready to do that, uh, saying that, you know, it's... On the basis of the unconstitutionality, if you agree with their reasoning, of a couple of provisions that don't really need the rest of the Act uh, to work. They're not integral to the rest of the Act. Uh, You know, it's like pronouncing somebody dead because he has a hangnail. Uh, So here I think I'm not sure what we can do besides psychoanalysis because the reasoning is so bad.
1: The, the Christmas tree uh, doctrine in which uh, once you have a problem with the one piece of the thing, it turns out that the whole thing would never have been passed without that piece. So you throw out all the ornaments and all the other stuff. This was part of their tough luck approach. I wonder if you want to say a little about that phrase that something that the whole thing needs to be jettisoned because the problem is not one that Congress should have been trying to solve.
0: Well, uh, so uh, the first question you can ask about this book is why do I call it Tough Luck Constitution? And uh, so, uh, well, let's go back to the oral argument. Uh, here we go In, uh, March 2012. Uh, the Solicitor General is trying to defend uh, compelling Americans purchase and he says it's fair to make them do this because the country is obligated to pay for the uninsured when they get sick and Justice Scalia responds well don't obligate yourself to that it's a very strange thing I say it's uh, essentially saying there really isn't any obligation to care for sick people who can't afford to pay for their own medical care Uh, then And if there isn't any such obligation, and if the only feasible way for the federal government to address it happens to be one that the court declares unconstitutional, then the upshot of that is that if you're sick and can't afford to pay for it, uh, you're tough luck. You can't get something in a market unless you pay for it. Uh, If you've been sick in the past and you can't get affordable insurance because of your pre-existing condition, that's your... Tough luck too hi uh, it would be unjust to take somebody else's wealth and require them to devote that wealth to paying for your health care. Uh, this is an old libertarian idea. The really big news about the court's decision is that five judges seem to have agreed with it, not just the four dissenters, but Roberts when he said that uh, the uh, mandate was beyond congressional power also seemed to rest on the assumption that uh, this really is a violation of people's liberty, that uh, uh, this is such an extraordinary thing for Congress to do that Congress can't do it unless it's got a specifically enumerated power to do it.
1: That obligation that Justice Scalia talked about, Justice Kennedy tried to figure out where it was coming from and went to the common law. He, he said, well, there's never been a legal thing that's implied that says there's some such obligation to the poor. And I found that puzzling because the obligation was coming from Congress. Didn't Congress create that obligation when it made its choices through in, 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 on behalf of voters?
0: Yeah,
1: um, I, 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 it sounds right. like Justice Kennedy so, was looking to, to the wrong place for the source of that obligation.
0: Uh, It's not, yeah, it's not clear how old common law rules could be a source of constitutional law. Well, so here's exactly what Kennedy said at the oral argument. Uh, The reason in this is concerning is because it requires the individual to do an affirmative act. In the law of torts, our tradition, our law has been that you don't have the duty to rescue someone if that person is in danger. The government saying the federal government has a duty to tell the individual citizen that it must act, and that changes the relationship of the federal government to the individual in a very fundamental way. So there seems, in Justice Kennedy's view, there seems to be... Uh, Something of constitutional stature about the old common law rule of no duty to rescue, even though he admits that that uh, rule is morally dubious. The uh, freedom from the obligation to take care of other people is somehow a matter of moral right, and there's a constitutional impediment to changing it. And that impediment comes into play not just when someone is required to engage in some physical act when someone's required to pay money for someone else's benefit.
1: In this case, it, it seems as if the fact that the voters had called for this kind of health care plan went way over to the side in terms of what was being considered. When Justice Scalia said, don't obligate yourself to that, he may have been talking to the 2008 electorate that, you know, said we want a health care plan that's going to accomplish these things.
0: I think that that's right. Uh, yeah. The undemocratic character of the uh, court's reasoning is striking here. Uh, the uh, and to some extent, it goes back to the question of what the Constitution is for and what. Uh, congressional power is for. Certainly, Congress shouldn't be exceeding the authority that the Constitution gives it. But the reason why we went to a Constitution in the first place, the reason why the framers abandoned the Articles of Confederation and put a Constitution into place is because under the Articles of Confederation, the United States was unable to a drill and pressing problem is that it was presented with. The big ones at that time were because there wasn't a power, a power to tax and that meant that Congress couldn't raise money. It just had to ask the states to, give, to send money to Congress and the states weren't very good about doing that. For that reason, Congress had trouble paying for an army at a time when the United States was surrounded by foreign enemies and Congress wasn't able to prevent tariff wars among the states, so that uh, you could be required to pay a tariff when you ship something from New York to New Jersey. And in the poor young economy of the United States, this was very bad news. So the basic purpose of the Constitution was to make sure that That the American people had the power to solve the problems that they were presented with but uh, there was no problem that could by any part of the government not the states not the federal government nobody Uh, and so that is I think the most important consideration you should have in mind when you decide interpret the us Constitution uh, when when you try to interpret congressional power under the Constitution the most fundamental thing about congressional power under the Constitution is that there should be no problem that you... mm. now this does mean that uh, there are some matters that are appropriately for the states but those are matters where there's no plausible story that you can tell about the need for congressional intervention. So I think the easiest case is one case where the court struck down a federal statute. In 1995, the court struck down the Gun-Free School Zones Act, which made it a a federal crime to on in the vicinity of a school now there 's no reason to think that the problem of violence near schools is when the states aren 't capable of handling themselves. So it's pretty clear that this law was just an attempt by Congress to grandstand and try to show that they were being tough on crime. It wasn't likely to be helpful with any actual problem that uh, the country, that the states couldn't handle by themselves. But you compare that with health care, health care really is a problem that's very hard for the states to deal with alone. If any state tries to put into place uh, universal health insurance, It's going to attract sick people from other states who are going to be tempted to move to that state in order to get your heart transplant or other really expensive medical procedure that you can't get in your home state. And so, no state was able to get the kind of broad health insurance that we know from polling Americans want because uh, the pressure of competition with other states. They do that. The only state that managed to do it was Massachusetts, but Massachusetts had a very small population. The uninsured population mostly was eligible for Medicaid, and because Ted Kennedy had so much clout in Congress, he was able to see that Massachusetts got a big infusion of federal dollars. It's hard for other states to duplicate that. Massachusetts was the only state that managed to do it. I guess the other state that managed to make substantial progress and broaden its coverage was Hawaii, but Hawaii has the advantage of being 2,000 miles away from the nearest other state.
1: It's a little tough to go there just um, when you're poor and sick. Um, Mm -hmm. Ironically, the clout that Ted Kennedy had to get money for Massachusetts was The same result that every member of Congress was getting for his state under the Medicaid expansion until it was struck down. Uh, Although, of course, the states still have the shot at it if they want it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the principle you're describing, the subsidiarity principle is what you call it in a book, that the federal government uh, needs to be able to solve the problems that no state can solve, was upheld in very recent decisions by the same court, right? I'm thinking of, of Comstock and Reich where you've got in Comstock a a really pretty small interstate problem that is just not an enumerated power, and the court said this needs to be soluble somewhere. Somebody's got to be able to solve
0: it. that's right. Uh, also, uh, I mean, that case also involves the necessary and proper clause. So let me just take those two in turn, subsidiarity and the necessary and proper clause. That's right. So the idea of subsidiarity, it's been explicitly adopted in the European Union, where they really have the same problem. You've got local units, and then you've got a broad overarching unit, and you've got to figure out how to allocate responsibilities between them. The idea of subsidiarity is the authority should have a subsidiary function and only do those things which can't be performed at a normal. These decisions can be done at a local level. They should be. That's the principle. And so... Uh, in the healthcare case, we see lots of people wanted broad health insurance. The state governments hadn't been able to deliver it. We can tell a pretty good story, a pretty clear story about why the states weren't able to do it. So that's suggests we should be able to address it. And then the necessary and proper issue uh, so take a step back. Con- Congress's powers are enumerated in the Constitution in Article I, Section 8. Uh, Article I, Section 8 includes, for example, the power to regulate commerce among the several states. And the court held in the 1940s that insurance was commerce among the several states. And Calculate it. For that reason, Congress absolutely—no, no no one questions—Congress has the power to say to health insurers: You cannot deny insurance to people who have pre-existing medical conditions. So, uh, if the, so just go back to the question of the mandate and why is there a mandate in the law uh, well, we've got a large population of people with pre-existing medical conditions because they have pre-existing medical conditions it's very hard for them to purchase affordable insurance insurers don't want to write insurance for people who have been sick in the past uh, and so there's a very large problem it means that people are stuck in their jobs because they can't uh, change jobs. That's a burden on the economy. Uh, So Congress has the power to say, sorry, insurers can't discriminate against these people. It has to uh, provide insurance regardless of pre-existing conditions. But once you do create a problem, because now that people with pre-existing conditions can buy health insurance and they're sick, then there's an incentive for consumers to wait until they get sick before they buy health insurance. But you can see how this endangers the whole system. If, people, if only sick people have insurance, then the money's not going to be there to pay for their health care. Insurance is about redistributing from who are well to the people who are sick. I buy insurance while I'm well to protect myself in case I get sick, but that means that my premium dollars don't come back to me. They go to the person who's sick. So in order to keep the whole system from unraveling, at the same time the court, Congress said you have to write insurance for people with pre-existing conditions, Congress also said everyone has to have insurance. The big question health case was, does Congress have the power to do that to require people to buy insurance? Well, it was absolutely indispensable to Congress doing what it needed to do to solve a common problem. so then the question is, does Congress have the power to choose this particular tool for carrying out this plan that Congress has the power to adopt well this Got resolved by the Supreme Court in uh, the early 19th century in a case called M- McCulloch versus Maryland. Uh, so, at the end of that list of congressional powers, in Article One, Section Eight, is a provision that says that Congress has the power to make all laws necessary and proper for carrying out the foregoing powers. So, any law that is necessary and proper for carrying out its enumerated powers is. Okay, and what the court said in the McCulloch case was that means that Congress has a choice. Congress can choose any convenient and useful means for carrying out its enumerated. Mm-hmm. Power. Well, that should be the end of the case. Congress has a choice of means. It's clear that requiring is useful and convenient for carrying out its enumerated powers. Uh, Therefore Congress ought to be able... Congress has got the power to do that and that should be the end of the case. What was really weird about to the Affordable Care Act is that the challengers never really were able to get around that basic rule that uh, Congress has a choice of means. The case that I've uh, that you mentioned, the Comstock case. Uh, so, Comstock involved a law that said that uh, if a dangerous sexual predator uh, concludes his term, concludes his prison term, uh but hes simply mentally ill that uh, there is uh, power in Congress to say that that person should be confined should continue to be convi- confined uh, the uh, and when the court tried to explain why does Congress have that power certainly states can do it uh, the court said well some of those offenders would likely not be detained by the states if they're released from federal custody. in part because they're not a resident anymore of the state that they used to be resident in, 10 years ago before they went into federal prison. They haven't been back in that state for 10 years. So that state's unlikely to take custody of them. Every state would like these people to be locked up, but no state wants to do it. Uh, And so the court said in Comstock, you can do this uh, because it is helpful to the legitimate task of operating Federal for people who commit federal crimes. But uh, once you've said that, then it's very hard to figure out why the mandate is different from that. If it's okay under the necessary laws to keep somebody in prison indefinitely, how can it be beyond congressional power to just make people pay a penalty if they go without health insurance. Well, you know, you look at uh, various opinions, uh, the... uh Roberts says, uh, well, the difference between this and uh, Comstock is that uh, the mandate applies to people who had no relationship before to the federal government, where Comstock, the people were already in federal custody. But that's a pretty broad understanding of what's a derivative power. Uh, he, Roberts is essentially saying, if in exercising their legitimate powers, the federal marshals ever take you into custody. They have a derivative power to keep you locked up forever if necessary. Uh, but, uh, you know, saying that that's just an incident of federal power, but uh, the Affordable Care Act's trivial burden on individuals is an intolerable invasion of liberty. Uh, This really is tough luck. It's not terrible to require people to uh, buy insurance, but making you die for lack of health care or making you bankrupted because a member of your family got sick, uh, well, you know, that's just something the Constitution requires you to put up with. It's a very strange set of priorities.
1: You make a terrific point also about the fact, the the argument that these people without health insurance have no prior relationship to the federal government. In fact, they were going to be punished through the income tax, correct? So that means that if they're not paying income tax and they don't have any relationship to the federal government through income tax, then the mandate has no effect on them and has no teeth. So just like the federal prisoners, these are federal taxpayers who have that pre-existing relationship too. But You point out this argument didn't make it to the Supreme Court for some reason
0: made it. Uh, well, the uh, the argument was not expressly made before the Supreme Court that uh, it is, and here's the argument. Uh, people is, uh, in essence, uh, tax that is to be collected only by reducing the amount of the refund that goes to taxpayers at the end of the year. So if you go without insurance, you can lose a chunk of your tax refund. Well, if you're getting a tax refund at all, you must have been engaging in economic activity. And uh, so you can't say that you're being required to pay this because you are in no activity at all or have no relationship at all to the economy. Although, so, so, you know, very few of us in the United States, in fact, live in the woods and eat berries. And uh, everybody is in fact involved in the economy So this weird state-of-nature reasoning really is pretty far removed from reality, but this formal argument that everybody is already involved in the economy, it didn't get made by the U.S. government, and I think the reason why it didn't is because uh, Solicitor General really just wasn't much interested in formal arguments of this kind, that uh, he thought, let's just talk about the reality of what's necessary in order for Congress to accomplish what it needs to accomplish here um, and, and by contrast and there's a, yeah it, and it's something of a poor fit between uh, the way that solicitor general really thought and the way that the members of the court thought because they are more formal
1: and it really is a, there's a, it's a whole school of thought. Uh, there's, there's a big, uh, energy behind that kind of formalist thinking as of the last 30 years in law schools. And I might be overstating that, but the Federalist Society loves formalist thinking and wants to think abstractly and work hard on the conceptual contours of these things. And it was a classic Federalist Society question in the argument, what is the boundary? You know, what's mm-hmm. the edge of the Commerce Clause power? And Solicitor mm-hmm. General Verrilli just didn't like that kind of discussion. That wasn't what he expected to be doing.
0: Yeah, so, he, uh, he certainly uh, didn't want to – he didn't have a very good answer to that question when it was pressed on him. And uh, you know, it's surprising that he didn't have a good short answer to that question. Uh, he gave a question that was so – he gave an answer to the question that was so long. I actually only quote a chunk of it in the book, but it's a long sentence with lots of subordinate clauses. Uh, and he has to give a concise account of what he thought were the limits of congressional power, and he couldn't do it.
1: And those sorts of uh, con- uh, concise accounts and those sorts of formulations are, are catnip. To the Federalist Society judges that really want to say, well, how does federal, what's the concept? How does federal power yeah. work? And how do we get it uh, reined in so that it isn't absolute? Because we've got to have state power too. So mm-hmm. it was really a remarkable moment there. And you
0: yeah. well, lay all this well, I'll out. Also, well, I'll also say that uh, this kind of formal argument is not only the political preserve of the right. Uh, there are people on the left in constitutional law. Uh, Probably the most prominent of them is Akhil Amar at Yale Law School, uh, who uh, try to make these kinds of formal arguments. And you also saw that in the earlier arguments that uh, the United States made, Uh, but those arguments were being made by the acting Solicitor General. Mm-hmm. You know, whose view, whose general approach to constitutional law is more Akhil Mar like than uh, that of Burleigh?
1: And Professor Mar's is also a historian in a way, and I wonder if the the battle this time was really a battle and an argument that we already had about the bank, the national bank. It really does seem like McCulloch versus Maryland was what was—the was same debate. About whether Congress could do something that wasn't spelled out. And that's the premise of your uh, approach in the, the Yale piece was about, you know, we've got to be able to deal with mail robbers. We've got to be able to deal with things that Congress needs to get done. And the National Bank was a huge argument that boiled down to that same question, it seems to me, that we're still having now 200 years later.
0: The mail robbery point that uh, Marshall made in McCulloch was uh, this, that uh, if Congress is going to carry out its enumerated powers, it's not going to be able to do a very good job of that if it can choose what it's going to use. So Congress has the power to operate a post office. Does that mean that it's got the power to make it a a crime to rob the mails? And Marshall said, yes, it is. Because uh, if you're going to Carry mail from one state to another. it just helps to be able to say that uh, people it 's a crime to interfere with the operation of mail delivery
1: and to be um, to Marshall, be fair to be fair to the federalist yeah. arg- the federal society argument or, or the uh, Scalia argument. It is a different meaning of the word necessary that Marshall is advocating there, because, as you described it, it's nice to be able to prevent mail robbery, but that isn't strictly necessary, right?
0: Well, that was uh, what was that was the precise issue in the McCulloch case. Uh, so uh, Maryland, which was arguing for a narrow reading of congressional power, which in that particular the Congress had no power to charter a. Better, bank of dates. If you uh, went with uh, Maryland's reading of the necessary and proper, Congress could only choose those means which were absolutely necessary such that uh, there was no other way of accomplishing it. Uh, And Marshall said, no, Congress has got a list of means for carrying out what it needs to carry out. Uh, If uh, it's... uh, if that's not uh, the case, it's not clear that with respect to anything that you do, that you can say that well. Even if it's urgent that you do it, it's very hard to say that the thing that you did was absolutely necessary, and that there was no other way of doing it. So think about uh, a law that makes it a crime to uh, a crime to begin a mutiny on a naval vessel during a battle. And And prescribes that there will be a punishment of 10 years in prison for somebody who uh, starts a mutiny. Well, you say, was that absolutely necessary? Why not 9 years or 11 years? But it turns out absolutely anything you could have done, there would have been alternatives. So no means is absolutely necessary, so Congress is helpless. It's just a ridiculous way of reading the necessary and proper clause. Congress has got to have some choice as to how it's going to carry out its enumerated powers. And that is what uh, Marshall said in McCulloch. Maybe it's not absolutely necessary to have a bank but uh, of the United States, but boy, it makes it easier for the federal government to, Operate it means that uh, the bank can collect gold in uh, New York, and then uh, if it needs to pay out money in Florida, the Bank of the United States can just say uh, send a letter to Florida, so the bank it's to the branch for the bank in Florida, and say we've got the money on deposit here in New, mm. New York. Write the you issue the script in Florida. If they had to be two separate banks, then in in under the transportation conditions of 1819, you would have had a whole a ton of gold from New York to Florida. Maybe it's possible, not absolutely necessary to do it, but boy, it's inconvenient and difficult.
1: So these views, though, about the necessary and proper clause and the Commerce Clause now, arguably, at least are law, because there are five justices that advocated for them um, I, that, you know, sorry, signed on to that, th- that reasoning. And I wonder what consequences you see that having uh, in the next few years and what you foresee as the uh, battleground in circuit courts, maybe um, the effects of the decision based on the, the, that reasoning.
0: Well, you know, on the specific holding, it's hard to see very much in the way of consequence. There are five votes for the proposition that Congress can't require you to buy a consumer product. Congress hardly ever does that. Congress doesn't want to do that. It's much easier to just subsidize things than to require individuals to buy them. It's the peculiar characteristics of the healthcare market that required Congress to use the mandate and so the immediate holding isn't likely to have much result. What really matters, I think, is uh, the broader philosophy that the court now seems to be willing to read into the Constitution. Uh, there's uh, so. Uh, all five judges seem to think that universal health care would be unconstitutional. Roberts upheld the mandate as a tax, but only because it was low enough that a person had a race of going without insurance and just paying the tax. So... It had been high enough that people had no choice, and you really did get universal health insurance. Robert seems to think that that uh, ILA tuition is a very big deal. They All of them were suspicious of redistribution. They thought there was a problem with asking the healthy and rich to support medical care for the sick and poor. Uh, it's that view that uh, uh, they, there are background conditions of tough luck for the sick and the poor, and those background conditions are somehow enshrined in the constitution that's the really big news from this decision so, yeah, to be clear, clear
1: I just to, to highlight your point there yeah. that those are not just policy views right those are views about what the constitution requires that what i think th- th- is what i think is remarkable th- about your book that you're really saying no matter what people vote for uh, until we get a different set of judges, uh no matter what people vote for, uh, this policy is required by the constitution um, so that 's I think really a yeah, startling a, uh thing the
0: general the general suspicion of congressional power and of redistribution is important. I guess the big question that uh, you know, the big question that I've got to explain when I talk about my book is you know this is all about things that happened a year ago. Uh, so uh, the general reader can reasonably ask, well, why should I care? All of this is old news. Here's why you should care. If you're sitting on a hill and a large boulder rolls rolls right past you, it's a good idea to look uphill to see if any more boulders are coming. What uh, the history uh, teaches us is that there are real dangers. There are five judges on the Supreme Court that are willing to embrace a radical libertarianism and make it a source of law. They're all still on the Supreme Court. They continue to exercise political power over the rest of us. We need to understand what happened.
1: And that political power Potentially trumps any electoral power because it's a constitutional yes. source for that argument and for that power to blow things up <laughs> that might be enacted.
0: In this Supreme case, court gets to strike down laws. Yes. Yeah. And in this
1: case, though, the bomb didn't go off. The the B didn't sting, as you say. The B was designed. This argument was designed just to take down Obamacare, and it didn't do it. And I'd I be remiss if I didn't at least have you lay out what you think Justice Roberts. Did. Why did he hang fire? Uh, I think you lay out two very good possibilities, and um, I think there's going to be a mystery there, but I'll, I'll save my thoughts. <laughs> uh, wh- you lay out two good observations about uh, why Justice Roberts may have switched his view to make sure that the, the missile found its target but did not explode and destroy the law.
0: Um, well, yeah, there were, I think that there was uh, well, there's been a lot of discussion about what's going on with Roberts. How is it that uh, Roberts, even though it's clear that he was full of sympathy for the challengers, he was ready to reshape constitutional law in accordance with their, Vision. Uh, so why didn't he just go all the way and strike down the statute? Uh, so one issue is uh, you know there's uh, there's a problem of notice to uh, craft a whole new set of rules of law that nobody ever heard of before, and all of these limitations that were asserted against the law were limitations that nobody had ever heard of before. Crafting a new theory and then using that to uh, declare the law unconstitutional, just looks like legislation from the bench. And so uh, Roberts worries about that. Uh, When you craft new new rule, and those new rules of law turn out to be really politically convenient... there's a real danger that uh, you'll not just be perceived to be, but might really be just a corrupt political Uh, So Judges are supposed to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest. Uh, The fact that uh, these are five Republican judges reaching out to strike down uh, the principal... And not a Democratic president, uh, I think put Roberts in an awkward position uh, where it just looks like he's trying to help the political side that he's on. Uh, he, I think that he was reasonably feared that the court would be perceived as doing something shameful. Uh, you, so, go a little, you go a
1: little further than that also in the book when you say it's not just the perception. Uh, And your sentence here is, if I, John Roberts, make new rules that happen to be politically convenient, how can I know that I have not become a corrupt political tool? You see this as a matter of conscience as well as perception, unless I'm over over reading your sentence there, that he actually has self distrust.
0: (laughs) I think that that's a reasonable thing for him to worry about. And uh, so my speculation is that uh, that's something else that he was concerned about and reasonably concerned about. Like, uh, you, know, if, uh, you I think that I've been calculating your salary correctly, and you show me that I've routinely been making math errors in my own favor. Uh, I will worry <laughs> after that. If I'm conscientiously trying to be honest, uh, it's, uh, you know, I've got to control myself better <laughs> because uh, you know, evidently I have inclinations to dishonesty that I haven't been aware of and that are actually operating in the world. Uh, I think Roberts was right to worry about that.
1: It's an, it's an astonishing piece, if if you're right about that, because it's so rare that self-distrust plays any role where people are questioning their own motives as opposed to everybody else's. Um, And I think you are right. But I I think you're right. I think there's something to that, especially in light of the stories that you point out about how he was on the other side for many weeks. Uh, He voted on the other side initially and he assigned himself the opinion to strike down Obamacare, but then Mm -hmm. switched many weeks later. It's really a remarkable uh, story that uh, is going to take some meditation. Well, you've laid out Um, so much for our listeners and we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything that we have left out that you think is key to the story you're telling with this book that we should touch on before we let you go?
0: I think that we have covered uh, a lot of it. Uh, you know, I think that more generally, I suppose, uh, you know, this is just one instance of, uh, way in which, uh, Ayn Randish philosophy has captured the imagination of the political right in the United States, and it's quite scary because as a general matter, it is a recipe for a country in which the strong get to prey on the weak. Uh, and uh, you know, the Constitution doesn't mandate any such thing, and the fact that there's a growing proportion of people who find it so obviously correct that they're ready to read it into the Constitution, even though the Constitution doesn't say a word about it, uh, that's the really big news. This is just one illustration of that.
1: Wow, well, very well said. Well, thank you, Professor Kaufman, for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to reading your work. And your your. this, I hope readers will take up the Tufts Love Constitution, and also your new book, uh, the title of which I hope you'll mention again.
0: Defending American Religious Neutrality.
1: Terrific. Well, thank you again, Professor. Thank you. That was Professor Andrew Koppelman of Northwestern University. His book is The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform. Join us next time on New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheight.